0: Okay. There you go. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Everybody got a sheet, hopefully? Okay. You guys want to stand with me? We will do the call to worship this morning from Psalm 99, where God is calling His people to worship Him, not only because He is holy, um, but because they're not, and so... We can remember that this morning we worship on God's holy mountain by faith. So I'll read the bold section if you'll read the um, non-bold section after me. From Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the holy. our God is holy. you want to turn with me, we'll sing um, song number one, Before the Throne. of sin this morning is taken from Genesis 2.15-17. through 17. This is not long into the Bible and we read these words. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So we see that it did not take long for, (laughs) we know what happens next, that it's not long after this where Adam and Eve um, disobey God. They eat of this tree and bring death not only to them, but to all that come after them. And so we're reminded even now in our sin and in our death that this is a result of the fall. And so even in our sin today that we struggle with this week um, or even today, Um, We're reminded of this fall and the effects of it on us, not only in sin but in death. So um, let's take a moment to confess our sins before the Lord. And if you want to remain standing, we'll sing song number eight, which is Psalm 100. So if you want to turn it to the back. So we'll be doing this to uh, the tune of the doxology. So think of the doxology, praise God, whom all blessings flow. But we'll be doing it a little bit slower. So just follow along as you can. sinfulness. Um, It's not long after Adam and Eve's fall where these words are written in Genesis 3. That after they've seen their nakedness and their shame, they seek to cover themselves with fig leaves and to hide from the Lord. But then the Lord comes to them and says this, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So God in his grace provides a sacrificial covering for Adam and Eve. He clothed them ultimately pointing to the work of Christ in covering sinners with his righteousness. So we can have assurance this morning that even though we, like Adam and Eve, we sin, we go against God, and we deserve death, that God has made a way in the person and work of his Son. So, could you pray with me? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning, thanking you for this beautiful day, um, the grace that you've given us to come and worship freely. Um, We thank you for your holiness, Lord, that you are perfect, holy, just, and good, and we see that we are not. And so we come this morning confessing our sins to you, um, knowing that there's no other place to turn. And we pray that we would run to you this morning by faith, and that we would know that Christ has made a way in his person and his work, that we might be made right with you. So help us to trust in that this morning. Um, We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Mm -hmm. You guys can be seated if you want. Um, Our confession of faith this morning is taken, again, from the Heidelberg Catechism. And this is, again, where we just confess true things about God, not only for our own remembrance, but um, to assure us. And this is probably my favorite question. It's answering the question of, what is your only comfort in life and death? And so just notice as we read um, the triune nature, of uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, and also that in life and death, no matter what, in body or soul, that we can have comfort knowing that we belong to Christ. So if you'll read with me, we'll answer the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong both body and soul, in life and death, unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood Has fully satisfied for all my sins, and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me, that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, all things must work together for my salvation. And therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life, and makes me willing and ready that from now on, I live for him. him. Amen. Well, good morning again. If you guys want to turn with me to Acts chapter 4, if you have your Bibles or on your phone or whatever, we'll be looking at verses 32, and then we'll start ch- um, chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. So. Hopefully at this point, for those of you that have been here, someone that was to ask you what's the book of Acts about, hopefully you would have (laughs) some sort of answer, and we've seen that the book of Acts is not merely historical events or good moral stories about how to be a better person, but it's really the acts of the risen Lord Christ, that upon his ascension that he has poured out his spirit and is building his church through the apostles starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so we've been going through um, the book of Acts, and we've been going verse by verse. And today we come to a very interesting passage, and um, really a very sobering one. And so it's a good reminder on days like this why we go verse by verse, why we don't skip around to the things that we like or want to talk about, because we come up against things that are not always easy to swallow, but therefore are good. So so the passage we're going to look at this morning is um, showing that there's no perfect church, that that even this church that the apostles are um, leading, that there's not perfect people in this church, and just because the apostles started it, it's not perfect. So we'll see not only the holiness of God in this passage, the seriousness of sin, but also um, God's mercy in this. And I was thinking today, um, it reminded me of if you've ever been driving on the highway, maybe the speed limit's 70 or something, and you start creeping up into 75, 80, 85, and then someone in front of you gets pulled over, and that that pit in the stomach, you know, kind of pops up, and you're sort of afraid. Am I next? Who's you know? What's going to happen? And we don't like that feeling of, of fear or that we've done something wrong. Um, but really that is good because what happens? It causes you to question, <laughs> was what I was doing was right? And it's ultimately a mercy. And so we'll be looking at that this morning. So we'll see um, that fear can actually be a mercy from God. So we're going to read the passage this morning. If you want to follow along with me, I'll pray and then we'll, we'll look at the text. So chapter 4, starting in verse 32. and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the Apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the Apostles' feet. Continue on in chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, But with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yeah, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you this morning sobered by your word, Lord. Um, these are sobering words, not only of the great grace that was poured out on your church and them, providing for one another, but also the great fear that came upon the church in this time. And we ask for your grace, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear not only of the holiness of God, and His perfection and the seriousness of our sin, but that we would also hear of the mercy and grace of God in Christ. Um, We pray these things by Your Spirit's power alone, not by ours, but by Your Spirit, and we pray that we would trust in You and run to You this morning. We pray all these things in Your Son's name. Amen. Woo! (laughs) This is quite the passage. Um, I think most people, if they've heard this, maybe they maybe thought it was in the old testament or something like that. So really we saw this morning two contrasting stories, right? We saw this great grace that was given to the church to share everything that they had, to provide for one another, to proclaim the gospel, but we also see this great fear that comes upon them when these two this married couple lies to not just Peter but to the Lord and they're they're struck dead. And so although these are sobering words, we also see Um, we'll hopefully see by the end the mercy of God. So like I said, in verses 32 through 37, we'll look at this great grace that God gives His church, and you can see that word um, in the passage. And then the second part, we'll look at the great fear that came upon them. So just a little bit of background, what happened in chapter 2, right? Pentecost happened, the Spirit was poured out, and it says that these people committed themselves to three things, to the Word, to fellowship, and to praying, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so it says they were committed to that. And then a couple weeks ago, we looked at the opposition that they faced from the leadership, from the religious people of the day. And so we see, we looked at last week that they began praying. So we see that this is confirming that what they said they were going to do, they did. They not only prayed, but they had perseverance. We'll see them fellowshipping today, this idea of community. And we'll also see them continue this proclamation of the gospel. So firstly, we'll look at the unity that they had. Um, This starts in verse 32. It says they were of one heart and one soul. And that they had everything in common. And so, maybe to our American ears, um, this sounds like communism, right? (laughs) They they had to give everything. And this is some sort of weird Christian communism. Maybe we need to live in a commune together and sell everything we have. That's not exactly what the passage is saying. Communism is where um, the sharing of things is not sharing really, but it is forced upon people. Whereas in true Christian community, as we see here, that it's not being forced upon them, it's a willingly giving of their things. So there's, a, I just wanted to make that clear, that communism says you have to give. <laughs> Whereas true Christian community says you get to, or that you want to. And just to co- point out a couple things about true Christian community, that this is an important part of We talked about it a little bit a couple weeks ago, but true Christian hospitality is a beautiful thing when you see it um In the church, it's not a false pietism. It's not a desiring to be flashy and show people how religious you are, how how much you give. We see this. This is what the Pharisees ultimately did. Jesus confronts them and says, you tithe your spices, you tithe dill and all these things, but you've ignored the weightier matters of the law. And so we don't want to be like that. We want to um, have true Christian community and... Not portray this face of um, being religious for the sake of religious. And we read in verse 34 that no one had need. And so this is amazing to think about. Um, you know, in this group, I don't think there's many of us that, have, that don't have shelter or food or things like that. But if someone did come, you know, we have to ask that question. What is the role of the church for those that are gathered to provide for them, to um, make sure that they have food and shelter and all these sorts of things? But even outside of that, even if nobody is you know, homeless or something, we we can provide for one another. We can have people to our house. We can um, be there for one another. Maybe it's emotionally, maybe it's physically, all those sorts of things. But Paul says in Galatians 6 that um, as you have opportunity to do good to those, especially of the household of faith. So this is our calling as Christians to make sure that no one is in need um, to be there for one another. And this is... Um, a good thing, but it can also be sacrificial at times, right? It's not always out of an abundance of what we have. Sometimes it might hurt to um, to spend <laughs> you know, money on doing this or doing that. And so it's important to know that this is all a sacrifice of praise ultimately, and that this is what the spirit of giving is about. And it's not holding tightly to the things of this earth, but um, remembering that we have a heavenly kingdom and that our inheritance is with God that we're not to be stingy or scroogey with our with our possessions, but um, to give them freely. And so this shows the great unity that the early church had and that we should have. And you also see in verse 33 that there was great power. And um, we read that, the, that with great power the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection. So not only was there unity, great unity, but there was also great proclamation. And I think this is important because a lot of churches in our day Um, with this focus on the social gospel, can tend to see giving to the poor, giving to the needy as their sole purpose. And it's a good purpose, and it is an important purpose, but we see here that the apostles are not giving up this proclamation of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that they are. The gospel is still at the center of all that they do. And it says that they were witnesses to the resurrection. And so this is important to remember that, just a sort of footnote there, it's only given one verse. And so finally we see an example of this in verse 37, that Barnabas sells a field and gives all that he has and lays it at the apostles' feet. So we see this great example of unity, of giving, and this is exemplified in Barnabas. So this is the great grace that was on the church at this time. And now we will look at the great fear. So in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we see what happens. Ananias and Sapphira, they also sell their field. So they didn't do anything less than Barnabas in that sense. They also sold their field. But what happens? They kept part of it for themselves. And they lied about that. And they told Peter that this was the whole portion. And we see that they both of them ultimately end up dying for this or passing away. And so... A question, if you went up to maybe a random person on the street and you told them this story and you asked them, what is the horrible action in this story? I think a lot of people would say, if they were honest, they would say, oh, that these two people died. And if we're honest, I think sometimes that we can answer that way sometimes, right? We can say, whoa, you know, that's serious. Maybe that's the horrible action. But I think this tells us something about not only how we see God, but how we see ourselves. That... These people lied to God, (laughs) and this punishment was, in a sense, deserved. Now, it might seem severe. It might not be the normal way that um, God operates. If people were to die for one sin, we would not be around for very long. But this tells us something about God's holiness, but also about the seriousness of our sin. And so we should really take a moment and think about what this means for us and How we would answer that question, and that we, we have to be careful not to forget god 's holiness and the seriousness of our sin, and we read about it today in the, the Confession of Faith, What did God say in the garden? "If you eat of this, you will surely die." What does Paul say in Romans? He says, "The wages of sin is death, and so even though this is sort of a severe example of that, if you will, it brings it right up to the front, right we can 't hide behind it um, Whatever we say, we cannot say that this was unjust of God to do this. And that even though in his common grace, he preserves us and he is gracious and patient with us. It's meant to lead us to God, not to continue in our sin. So this shows us the seriousness of sin. So let's ask the question, what is Ananias and Sapphira's sin? Because many people will twist this. There's a lot of prosperity um, preachers out there that will say their sin was that they didn't give everything. And if you don't want to die, you need to give everything to my ministry. Plant a seed or whatever they say. I don't, I'm not sure if you guys have heard anything like this, but that's not the sin ultimately. Their sin was not that they didn't give everything. Their sin was that they lied to God. And we kind of see Peter basically say this, that um, this was a premeditated act. they in verse um, 32, it says that they came together to do this. This was not um, a spur of the moment. that This was a premeditated act of lying to not only Peter, but ultimately to God. And then we might need to ask the question, why did they sin? Was it because they were in need? Or, you know, why did they sin? The text doesn't say a lot, but we can infer that they were doing this out of pride, ultimately. They wanted to appear more religious and more holy than they were because they were saying that this is how much we sold it for when really they had kept back some for themselves so they're trying to put on this appearance of religiosity of of lots of giving you know look we sold everything just like barnabas but really they are lying and keeping some for themselves So all this to say that even good things like giving, they still gave. We don't know the percentage of what they kept, but let's say it was 90 or even 95% of what they sold it for. That's a good act, right? It's a good act. They gave a lot. Why Why can't they just be happy with that? But they lied about that. And so even something good as giving can be twisted onto an evil intention or an evil desire. And I was reminded of a friend we know actually from Decatur She was an unbeliever for 37 years. She was a staunch atheist, didn't believe in God. And she said, I did good things. And she said that after she came to Christ, she heard the gospel, she said this. She said, I realized that for all those years I had done a lot of good things, but the reason I did them was for myself, so that other people could see how holy and righteous I was. Even though she didn't believe in God, she still had this desire to appear right, in front of other people. And so, I was just reminded of that, that even as believers we do this, right? How often do we say, "Um, yeah, I'll pray for you, man, or yeah, I'll um, I'll do this. And we don't do it, you know? (laughs) We try to appear more righteous than we are. And I'm guilty of this. That I say, yeah, I'll pray for you, or you forget, or you do something else, and we don't don't take that serious. And it might not be intentional, but it's in the moment to appear that we are um, doing something that we're not. So, we could say that doesn't this kind of sound severe, this punishment? Isn't this a bit severe? But in reality, that this was a great mercy and grace from God. That It says in verse 11, if you want to look up there with me, chapter 5, verse 11, it says, "...and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things." So why were these people afraid? Notice they didn't say, oh yeah, Ananias and and Sapphira, those guys were total jerks. I'm way better than them. There was real fear that they had because they knew that they were no better than Ananias and Sapphira, that they were liars and cheaters and thieves and all these things. And that this was a great grace of God to do this to just like that situation of the cop and the speeding. When you see someone else punished for doing the same thing that you do causes you to think twice before before doing that thing. And so um, we can see that even though that there's fear on the church, that this is a great grace from God. So admitting that this is a heavy passage and even difficult for some people, let's step back for a minute and let's look at three things um, as we try to apply this. Because I think that a lot of times someone might come to this passage and the way that they would apply it is don't do bad, do good, right? See, look, if you do bad, you're going to die. You should do good so you don't die. And um, a great theologian named Gerhardus Foss said, when we come to the scriptures, we're not entering the school of ethics. We're entering the kingdom of redemption. That ultimately, um, this is what needs to be the overarching theme of, of what we read. And so we'll look at three things First, that God is holy. That God is holy. That he's perfect. And we see this, kind of a parallel passage to this in the Old Testament in Leviticus 10, if some of you are familiar with this passage, um, the story of Nadab and Abihu. They were priests. They were sons of Aaron. And it says that they brought strange fire to the Lord, fire that he had not commanded. And it says fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. (laughs) So again a very serious sin, and the fire consumed them. We can think of Isaiah 6, if any of you are familiar with this passage. Isaiah has a vision of the Lord. He's enthroned, high and lifted up. Smoke fills this temple. And what does Isaiah say? I'm so great. No, he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. So when Isaiah sees a vision of God, he recognizes God's holiness. And we can often forget about this. We can tend to um, forget about God's holiness. But if we're honest, this is both good news and bad news for us. It's good news because we do not want an unholy God. That would be the worst thing. <laughs> if God was not holy, that would be bad news for us. But it's also bad news for us because we are not holy. Right? No one seeks after God. None is righteous. No, not one. And so, we see that God is holy, and this means something for us. Number two, that sin is serious and deserves death. So we might be asking the question, what is sin? Um, The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it as any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That when we transgress God's law, that we are in sin. And again, Looking back at Adam in the garden, many people say, what's the big deal? He just ate the fruit. (laughs) Right? We can tend to think that way. What is the big deal? He just ate the fruit. But um, it is much more serious than this, that Adam in the garden was given um, a covenant, if you will, a covenant of works, that if you do this, you will have eternal life. You will eat of the tree of life. But we know that Adam did not long abide there, that he sinned, that he fell, and that he failed this Um, and transgress this covenant. And so what happens in sin in the fall, that these covenant curses are poured out not only on Adam, but on all of us, that we are born in sin, as David says in Psalm 51. And so Ananias and Sapphira show us that there's no such thing as a small sin, that the wages of sin is death. And so you might be asking, okay, what does that mean for me? And like I said, this is a great mercy of God. Because we don't like to look at our sin, right? We don't like to have our sin come right in front of us and show its ugly head. And that we are guilty. We don't like that. It's not fun. I can admit that. But it is only when we see the depths of our sin, our transgression before God, that we can fully see the glory of the gospel of what Christ has done. So that leads us to our third point. God is holy, sin is serious and deserves death. But the third point is that Christ has conquered sin and conquered death. That in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, that he has made a way for sinners. That we don't have to fear death. That he came as the perfect sacrificial lamb that he um, represented us on the cross. And you might say, okay, what does this mean? That his death on the cross is our death. What does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is not some sort of weird mystic Russian nesting doll where there's a little god inside of you or something like that. But theologians have called this the mystical union. It is the idea of being united to Christ. And what does Paul say in Romans 6? He says, If we've been united in him with a death like his, how much more will be united to him in a resurrection like his that for christians we don't have to fear death what does jesus say in john 8 he says truly truly i say to you whoever listens to my word and does it he will never see death and our question might be Uh, What do you mean? (laughs) Everybody dies. What What are the two inevitable things, death and taxes? Everybody dies. But I like how the Catechism puts it. It says, if Christ has paid for our sins, why do we still die? And the answer that is given is death is not a punishment for our sin. It is actually a passage from this life to the next. And so we don't have to fear death as Christians, that by faith we are united to Christ, not only in his death, but in his resurrection. And so, even though we can tend to be afraid of the unknown, that we can have true, lasting hope that God has gone before us in the person of Christ, conquered death, resurrected from the grave, and that this is our great hope. That by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we can be saved. And that we can have true assurance that God will not um, punish us for our sins that those were paid for by Christ on the cross. And so... Whether this morning maybe you're downcast, maybe you have a soft conscience and you see this passage and you say, my sin is great, I'm doomed. (laughs) We can have hope this morning knowing that Christ has done it, that he has paid for our sin, that we need not fear death, that if our trust is in Christ, that we can have hope. And for those of us that are proud, maybe we don't see our sin as a big deal, we like to push it under the rug or... it a little white lie or whatever we do, hopefully this passage will humble us and cause us to not run from Christ, but run to Christ and flee from our sin. And hopefully we can remember that at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, that we are nothing more than sinners saved by grace. And this both humbles us and gives us hope. And I just wanted to finish by reading um, the lyrics of the song that we sang this morning, Before the Throne. So just listen. um, to these comforting words. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, my spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with Himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. May this be our prayer this morning. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we come before you this morning, Lord, humbled and sobered by your word, um, humbled and sobered by our sin. Each of us knows our sin um, more intimately than anyone else, Um, but you, Lord, know all things. And so we pray this morning that we would not despair, that we would not um, be downcast, that we would run to you this morning in our sin, repenting, confessing, and believing on Christ that we've been united to Him by faith alone, that we have life with Him in heaven and will one day be resurrected to new life in the new heavens and the new earth. And that is our eternal hope. May we not cling closely to the things of this world, but may we rest in Christ today. In your name we pray. Amen. Song number four. Revelation one. This is John speaking after he's seen the Lord in a vision, and he says these words. And when I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the death the keys of death and Hades. May we remember that this morning, Um, grace and peace as you go from here. You guys want to stick around? We can hang out for a little bit and then we'll do another little update meeting for those that are interested.